Hello and welcome to Read It For The Pictures, the comic book podcast where we read it for the pictures. I'm Dave Clark, and with me is a demonic globalist goblin, Neil Caffett. <laughs> How you going, Neil? Thank you, Alex Jones. This week we have Generation Gone Number 1, written by Alice Cott and illustrated by Andre Lima Arujalo, I believe. And also, Aliens, Dead Orbit, number three, written and illustrated by James Stokoe. Yeah, interesting picks this week. We talked briefly before this podcast about what we'd do if we were hypothetically trying for a more commercial podcast that talks exclusively about comic book artwork. I am not sure either of these would qualify. Yes, we remain steadfast in our dedication to never being popular. Yes, we will try to avoid big event comics where major intellectual properties turn into Nazis. Uh, So so long as those comics aren't popular, I could see something where, I don't know, the Smurfs have a a run-in with the Third Reich or something equally ridiculous. You heard the theory about how the Smurfs are clansmen wearing white little caps with the red cap on Papa Smurf, the Grand Dragon, while their enemy is the suspiciously Jewish-looking Gargamel, a Kabbalic mystic. And I say this being Jewish myself, so I can get away with it, kind of. Yes, and I'm a Smurf, so I can also have some input on it. Uh, no, I mm, feels like a stretch to me, but then again, I never really got in that deep with the Smurfs. It was never really a thing down here. I wasn't either, so I think you should get back in touch with your Smurfish roots, Davy Smurf. Yes, but let's Smurf on. Uh, (laughs) Generation Gone, number one. This was your pick, and I suspect you may have more insight into what's going on with this one. Well, I'm a fan of Alice Cott, a writer who's made some rather high-profile defections from Marvel and DC and definitely wears his politics on his sleeve, his politics matching kind of up with our own agenda. But this one was particularly interesting because in a conversation I had with Alice on Facebook, because he's... The senpai who's actually noticed me and liked some of my posts. That he is also a fan of Metal Gear Solid Five, and some of the themes in that game reoccur here, most notably in the design of a particular character. And there goes some money in the jar again. Yeah, I remember turning, opening this book, and there was a page where someone who looks suspiciously like Hideo Kojima is talking about his plan to build giant robot soldiers, and I'm like, oh, I see why Neil picked this. Well, that's just to get the military-industrial funding. His real plan involves code, which gives magic abilities, not unlike what nanomachines do in the Metal Gear games. But the main story involves this Dr. Accio. There's a bit of an anagram there. Scouting out test Sorry, subjects. Accio are all is all letters in Kojima. That uh, might just be a coincidence, but 
hit. He's scouting out a group of hackers, millennials, he believes, have the aptitude to be the test subjects for his future code serum. And most of the issue is getting to know these three millennial hackers. And a lot of the art is establishing these characters as personalities. There's three of them. There's Elena, who wants to rob uh, the Bank of America via hacking to pay for her mom's chemo. Baldwin, who had wants to strike against the racist, imperialist American government. And Nick, who's just a selfish asshole, pretty much. And he's dating Elena and in a very manipulative way, and he constantly gaslights and verbally abuses her. Yeah, they, so, they really want you to hate that guy right off the bat, don't they? Well, he threatens to break up with her if she shows any doubts about what they're doing with trying to hack the Bank of America. So, yeah, he is definitely in the asshole category. Of all the millennial characters in this, he's probably the guy who goes on forums with a Peppy the Frog avatar. Yeah, or perhaps a more generic brand of butthead. I suppose. But yeah, this was... I just, uh, I looked up again, because I remember I've read a few issues of another Alice Cott project called The Surface, and the art in this reminded me a lot of that, but that was drawn by, if I'm getting this right, Langdon Foss. And this is uh, Andre Lima, forgive me for butchering this, Arayu? Arayal? I think it's Arujo. Ah, that's probably better. Yeah, well, he's done some pretty some stuff for Marvel before, and but he's also worked with Cot, who's makes makes sure that his artists are credited and compensated appropriately. He's definitely a a writer who speaks up for artists, which is good because that doesn't happen much in this industry. In addition to not comics not being a particularly lucrative field. They're especially not lucrative for the people on the drawing side. Kind of the reason why I took you up on the offer of this podcast. How do you mean, sorry? Well, it's like artists are pra- treated as practically in- interchangeable in the current comics industry. Like you heard about how the big crossover secret Empire has a new artist every issue. There's an X-Men book launched with a new artist every issue. The page rates for art aren't exactly spectacular. I I remember hearing, even in terms of rights sharing, like Sean Murphy was given a pretty low percentage of the rights for Grant Morrison's Joe the Barbarian, and Morrison actually was under the impression that he was giving a fairly generous offer. Ah, oh dear. Yes, that's why we do what we can to focus on artists, even though... But yes, we should dive into that right uh, now. Um, I guess one of the challenges of this comic is that it's, like, from almost the start, it's like a PowerPoint presentation, followed by a bunch of people hanging out in a single room on their on their laptops... And so it's, it's well, yeah, it's not the most dynamic stuff. And it almost feels deliberate 
there's a fair few pages that have letterbox panels. Yeah. And, like, it's a fairly regular structure. And I don't think that gets broken until the end, until the, like, the big exciting Mm -hmm. event happens. Yeah, there's the scene at the end with them getting the powers by uh, spewing black goo out of their eyes and mouths. And I guess at the beginning, there's this one shot of the secret DARPA hangar that Mr. Accio works with the Metal Gear things and whatnot. Other than that, it is kind of beige and prose. I think it's it's done well to create a sense of environment and place. I mean, these are millennial characters who are definitely not affluent, like Elena mentions get having two jobs. Nick continuing the compl- making him the obnoxious stereotype of millennials doesn't work at all and isn't interested in getting a job beyond what he's stealing. And you can also see like there are just mattresses lying on the ground. They sleep on couches. They don't even have particularly impressive computer setups. Just laptops around a modem and. I think it works pretty well. Like, Generation Gone is the title of this. Uh, People who feel like they've been left behind from the American dream, where they're just trying to get by with adequate accommodations and not even avocado on toast to splurge on. Yeah, it does sort of, like, give a a sense of realism, so to speak. So, like, I could imagine... Like, if you really wanted to um, squeeze a bit more excitement out of the laptop hacking scenes, then there are some things you could do, but this is, like, fairly pared down to what it actually would be. I think there's a few shots where, just with the uh, conversation between two of them after a movie theatre, which it has, like, a a bunch more weirdly angled shots and close-ups that stands out a little bit from the rest of them. Also, that's got, like, dramatically different lighting to every other scene. Yeah. Usually, the colors in this, but the colors, who are they by? Chris O'Halloran. They're pretty simple. There's there's definite tones on shading, but overall, except for, like, the scene you mentioned, there, there aren't any fancy effects until towards the end when... There is just black goo all over the place, but even that's not exactly breaking the bank with effects. Also, while the hacking scenes here aren't as visually dynamic, feel free to imagine our podcast with us, like, hunched over the computer with dramatic angles, typing furiously like it's a Hollywood hacking scene. Yeah. Hopefully not too much of the typing is coming through in the recording. Actually, it's more likely that I'm petting my cat with kind of a cold Bond villain demeanor while I'm doing this. But anyway. Yeah, um, I guess one of the interesting things to talk about is the front cover, oddly enough. Yeah, it actually starts the story in the front cover. You see the word balloons of Nick and Elena's conversation while he's being a total asshole about how... She apparently says, I love you too much. Yeah, it's it's an odd design. It actually gets back to something I was saying about our first issues a few episodes ago, 
where they'll have something dramatic and exciting happening on the cover to make you pick up the issue, but then that's the last thing that happens in the story. Well, I think this is actually a really good idea to start with the story literally on the cover, because the cover stands out a lot amongst the other books I got this week, which I'm holding right now. Like, I am still buying some Marvel and DC stuff because I hate myself and have no self-esteem, so... There's, like, the Batman cover, which is the Riddler holding some bloodstained cards, including a bloodstained Joker card, because it's this war of jokes and riddles. And that cover is by Mikhail Janine. There's the X-Men Gold cover by recently fired anti-Semitic artist Ardian Syaf, which shows this villain called the Executioner holding a smoking rifle. There's a bunch of pictures of the X-Men in the background with bu- bullets in the posters of their heads. And neither is a particularly... They're, bu- they're well-framed images and they're rendered decently, but neither stands out the way this does. It's kind of like by being the opposite of all- the Flash, it stands out. Like the theory about how you have a person with clothes and a group of naked people the person who has the clothes on will stand out yeah makes sense enough yeah and um they say the design of this book is by a guy named tom Mueller, and i've been following some of i think i was following him on tumblr ages ago and he's done a bunch of work for alice cott and he's worth looking up he's done well he, he puts together interesting covers for alice cott's projects that's for sure well there isn't a lot of thought to design put into comics usually. I mean, other than a few designers who get into higher positions, like how Jonathan Hickman has a flow chart for pretty much every project he does. Mostly you don't see like the design of it as a magazine, or in your case, a digital copy as a separate task that's credited. So I like it. It's definitely a striking book, and I do like how... There's, in the last two pages, there's this image of the code that gives superpowers, which unfortunately didn't work for me as I saw it. And then there's an image of Elena flying. That's the preview for the next issue. Yeah, it's, um... So... Yeah, the... I think this is one of the few examples where having a cover for the next issue sort of contextualizes a few of the things that have happened in, like, the issue you're currently reading, which... Like I, yeah, I suppose it's one trick to have to have the first cover of a series be the first panel of the story, but then to have like the cover of the next issue be connected to the end of the previous issue is I don't know, it's an interesting trick. And there's no ads in this. Like I'm looking at the physical version and the back of the book has the legal stuff, like the all the fine print and copywriting as well as the credits. And there's also the logo, the GG, one G being black, one G being white. It's pretty cool. Another advantage there- of starting right off with a panel from the story on the cover is that the story didn't pause at any point to throw you a credits page. Which, yeah, interesting little trick. There's also no ads in this. I'm looking at the other magazines I have. In the times when I've I've asked you to get superhero books, have there been ads in the digital copies? No, thankfully 
in the digital copies, you're saved from that. But I remember I was walking into, like I'd been out of superhero comics for ages, and I wandered into the comic book store, and I was like, oh, let's see what DC are up to. And I opened a book, and immediately one of the pages, like I opened it, and like one of the pages was this huge ad. I was like, oh, I remember. It's there. We could probably have a separate conversation about the way Marvel and DC are doing ads these days because I haven't haven't seen what they've been doing with ads. Well, they clearly realize that kids are no longer reading these comics. So, and they're also working their IPs in the ads. So, like on the back of X Men Gold, there's a Booking.com ad saying. Start chilling like a villain, and it shows Loki and the Enchantress and the Executioner hanging out at a spa. Is it like like a photograph with the illustrations incorporated in, or is it... It's just an illustration. Someone was commissioned to draw these various Thor villains chilling like villains at a tiki spa resort that you can apparently go to with Booking.com. And I guess they're assuming that it's adults who have disposable income reading these comics who want to get some traveling in while they, the world's still intact. Yeah, well, we can't be that much, much further away from having like ads that are like an actual comic, like those Hostess Fruit Pie ads. We do. There's In Batman, there is an ad for Snickers. It's a two-page thing where they feed a rampage Cajun gorilla, Superman the Flash, feed him a Snickers, and he turns back to a normal person because he's no longer hungry. Man, as much crap as I talk about DC, I would buy a trade that was just nothing but, like, two-page ads for random stuff. I'd especially buy it if they started working some of the Vertigo books into it. Anyway, I think we've we've, gotten... Yeah, we've gone a bit off topic, and we've talked about... Yeah, we've been a bit been to DC than for longer than was needed, but I guess ultimately, with the art in this book, it's hard to really elaborate on it too much further. There's like a deliberate decision to pare down the art, which for, I imagine in future issues, they're going to want to have that juxtaposed against all the crazy new powers that our protagonists have, but we get a little bit of that at the end, but mostly it's fairly pared down there's not all that much that's done with the coloring it's generally just flat lighting everywhere there's a few shots there's like a shot where the scientist is being serious and there's a bit of a cooler tone thrown over his face well there this is a book about disaffected youth so there i think that you're right that it's deliberately beige other than, like, some of the interest images during the scientist's presentation, like a snake eating its own tail. Why would they pick that particular image, I wonder? And as well as, like, some Greek gods and double helixes and other interesting philosophical stuff. But, yeah, most of it's kind of beige and because the characters don't have a lot and their relationships aren't exactly passionate. The... Highest the emotions run before the scandal seems to be the scene where they first successfully hack DARPA and Baldwin has to aggressively close Nick's computer so they don't get caught because Nick is showing off. Yeah, it's, um, like for the most part, Alice's writing does c- carry this. 
but I imagine, but I imagine the artist will get a bit more of a chance to flex his mus- muscles in future issues of this. Well, did you feel unsatisfied with what you paid for here? No, I think I think it it delivers on a comics worth of story. I'm wondering how much of that is just not putting the characters like transforming on the front page. Sorry, on the that, cover. Well, in this economy, we don't get superpowers on the front page. There's, I mean, the si- image with them getting the powers with the black goo spewing out of their eyes and mouths is pretty impressive, though. And, like, the really organic line work of the trails of goo. Yeah, that that part's done really well. But, yeah, I guess, ultimately, Generation Gone number one... We look forward to seeing what you can do in the future. We can't sell it very well right now as a spectacle, but it's definitely a strong work with a lot of potential that I'll be following further. As damning damning with faint praise as it may seem, I think potential is probably the best way to sum up this issue. Well, there is a certain art in being able to sell a story in which not much happens, so... I think Arujo did a really good job, and as did Tom Mueller, Chris O'Halloran, Clayton Klaus, and Alice Cott. This is a really strong beginning, and you should buy it. I, I would say wait for the trade. But anyway, on to Aliens Dead Orbit number three by James Stokoe. Just Why'd one... you pick this one? Uh, well... Yeah, apologies to anyone who was listening last week when we said we were going to read the fix for this episode. Yeah, there was a delay there, so I frantically had to choose something else. And this one was on sale on Comixology, so I only had to pay a buck for it. Okay, so that's the same reasoning as I used for when we read Lilith Dark. I only realized it was on sale after I started to buy it, but yeah, it helped and... Like, James Stokoe was a guy whose work I'd been interested in for a while. I'd seen some of the stuff he'd done on Orkstain, and he's propped up in a few of Brandon Graham's projects, like Prophet and King City. I will definitely have to read more of Brandon Graham's stuff, so, yeah. Yeah, if this is your first uh, reading of James Stokoe's stuff, what did you think? I was extremely impressed by this. I mean, I was surprised they were still making Aliens comics, and I'm not terribly familiar with Alien. I saw the first 70s Ridley Scott movie in preparation for this. I saw the Aliens by James Cameron as a kid and had a few of the toys, like the gorilla alien with arm expanding and chest beating action. I don't think that appeared in the movie, and I'm kind of wondering why they were advert selling toys about this body horror riddled frick series to children, but whatever. Yeah, the 80s were a weird time. Wasn't there like a Robocop cartoon? This was in the early 90s that they were franchising out heavily R-rated franchises to children. There was even a Mortal Kombat cartoon, but... What, how I came to this is, like, they're hiring an incredibly unique and detailed and idiosyncratic artist for a story that kind of fits into the general alien stories, where, like, 
crew of people on desolate space station attacked and mutilated by xenomorphs. I guess it's kind of, I was, th- I'm not sure who brought this up, but a while back someone speculated, like, what if they did an anthology that was all different artists doing extremely individualized takes on the same story? Like, it could be an issue of all Superman origin stories, like the opening one by Frank Quietly and All-Star Superman, except everyone puts their own stamp on it. So this is very much James Stokoe doing an alien movie, and I think it works really well. The art here is amazingly detailed. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's un. How to talk about the detail in a James Stokoe book? It's interesting because there's clearly a manga influence in a lot of the faces, and like you see exaggeration to get certain expressions across, and but and sometimes the faces are like like just a few lines and very simplified. But there's like a sense of trying to give texture to the world, like through back like backgrounds and sometimes. There'll be, like, a shadow cast on a figure, and it'll be, like, lots of... Like, it won't just be a flat black, it'll be lots of individual lines. Yeah, it, like, gives a texture to the world. It's definitely interesting, because there are pretty fairly simplistic figures with incredibly detailed backgrounds. I guess that's a similar contrast as we saw from Jeff Darrow and Shaolin Cowboy. And I was... I think the contrast works really well. It has characters who are believable as actors, as well as creating an immersive environment of this godforsaken hunk of metal infested with xenomorphs. Yeah. Well, there also seems to be a deliberate choice to drop backgrounds in certain panels to make the action read better. That would be where you saw the manga influence with the speed lines? Um, also that, but like I was got that mostly from the faces yeah yeah there's a lot of speed lines in this well i was looking at more of stoko's art on google and this is kind of his oeuvre extreme detail and incredibly bizarre piles of just stuff yeah orkstein is a is yeah a real example of that there's lots of like gigantic like, he'll do a two-page spread that's a gigantic battle filled with people fighting each other, and it looks very, very, like, just full of people and kinetic and bloody. Yeah, it's different from what we saw with Jeff Darrow, because with Darrow, a lot of it's separate entities, like people and animals in the background doing things. With Stoko, it seems to be adding the all the detail to a unified construct even when he's doing a scene with a lot of characters there's still that kind of unity like i looking on google one of his covers for marvel where there's a giant godzilla-sized hulk smashing a city while a bunch of smaller human-ish sized hulks fall out of the buildings yeah yeah as well as there is another one he did for Marvel, which is an army of Iron Men fighting tanks that look like they're out of World War Two. Yeah, there's um, like compared to some of the other stuff he's done, this Alien issue is kind of like pared back. Well, it's a straightforward story of a crew trying to survive an alien invasion, and the de- places where he puts in the detail are the alien aspects, like the cocoons of 
organic looking matter that what the main character gets stuck in or like the view of the ship from the outside with all the metal panels and pipes and sections even for figures the only ones that get a lot of detail on them are the zombie like creature that attacks the crew and i guess the brief view of the xenomorphs themselves which are extremely complex designs but ironically like in the opening spread the Z- a lot of xenomorphs are flat blacks yeah although there's, like there's yeah there's an interesting thing going on with the xenomorphs where like he's tried to well, create texture on them to make yeah they're not well there's some bits that are flat black but the rest but other bits like are almost flat back they're just made with individual lines with just little bits like being missed which cr- creates a bit of a texture makes them read as more complex mm. which yeah that's an interesting way to go about things well he's working with a template that is inherently complex like the original xenomorph designs i guess they were by hr geiger the swiss surreal artist who designed the aliens from alien and they're complex designs they've got elaborate shells and a lot of body horror going on including some sexually evocative stuff with the face huggers and the chest bursters and the tongue with a mouth on it that's compared to i'll stop here so that we don't get an explicit label it's a good design that xenomorph like if you're gonna make comics for 30 40 years out off something there are worse things you could use well when we do long-standing franchises i think the way to go is something like this where you take the idea that everybody knows because aliens has been so influential there's been so many alien movies and properties that when you have it as a comic give the artist license to make it theirs let the art tell the story so that people may read it for the pictures and certainly makes our job more easy and interesting well we've got james stacco doing it it's not like we're reading a mark bagley alien comic Okay, no offense yeah. to Bagley. That'd be an interesting sight. If yeah. you had, like, a standard superhero artist doing an alien story... Yeah, it would It would be odd. Well, I remember reading way back a Batman vs. Predator comic, which was similar, and, like, having Adam and Andy Cooper in their first big, big professional assignment doing these incredibly disgusting creatures in the Batman world... Of course, Batman puts on some a metal power suit to fight them. Ah, yes. No such luck for the guys in this story, though. Yeah, this is significantly better because they're just guys. They're not Batman. Yeah, well, one thing I wanted to talk about about this book in relation to the previous one is the coloring. This um, Stico so, did the coloring himself, right? Yeah, this is all one dude. But, uh, yeah, there's, this is almost an opposite approach to Generation Gone, where, like, Generation Gone had, like, everything had its color, and it was mostly unchanged, except for, like, a few scenes where the lighting changed. Like, thing, the colors of stuff in this story seems to change all the time. Like, there are, there's a scene, like, when characters yell, they turn, like, everything goes red, or more red, I should say. 
there seems to be a deliberate warming of the color palette in every scene where there's action. I mean, the opening spread is interesting because it's a lot of reds and purples that are a bit lighter hues by contrast. But while a lot of scenes when the characters aren't being pursued by aliens have more like a cold palette, it's interesting use of colors and it's pretty saturated. Like there's a lot of color to the color. Yeah, it's interesting where Generation Gone tries to use color to show what a scene looks like. This seems like almost uninterested in like what color things would actually be and is just trying to convey the emotion of the scene. Like someone gets stabbed and everything goes orange. Like when someone's giving a weird, ominous speech, they'll go more blue than the rest of the scene. Yeah, I imagine otherwise, like this is, for the most part, three people running around a spaceship, and I imagine if you're going to color the things what they're supposed to be, using air quotes there, everything would just kind of be a dull gray. Yeah, and it'd just be kind of the brown shading colors that are supposed to be realistic and are thus unimpressive. We see a lot of those in video games, comics, and movies. It's been a while since I've seen Aliens, but I remember there being... Like there being a fair few scenes that have like a bright red or blue light to colour what's going on. But um, you've seen one of the Alien movies more recently than me. Well, there, yeah, and that movie starts off pretty slowly and does a lot of time. the first movie, that is, right? Yeah, the one by Ridley Scott. So it does a lot of setup of the environment and the characters and their dissatisfaction with their life. And then it just kind of, there's a lot of panning through these desolate, abandoned space areas. And then, of course, there's like the big jump when the facehugger comes or when the alien bursts out of the chest or when we actually see the alien. So, but here we're reading part three. I don't know what the previous part is, so we're in more of the action part. Yeah, taking taking a break from this for a second. What do you th- what would you think of Alien? Rewatching it for this episode, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I mean, I, I felt like at first it was kind of dull, but then it's a nineteen seventy nine movie, and I'm watching it from the perspective of someone who's seen works that build on all these tropes and use all these tropes. So I don't think I can give that great a judgment on it, seeing it for the first time. I will say that the cat who played Jonesy the cat didn't do a very good job because the cat wasn't emoting while it was in the background while the guy was having the alien burst from his stomach. You see, I think that's a deliberate choice because cats are, for the most part, bastards. We, you, I have words with you on that. I mean, I think the cat would at least be running away and hiding instead of just sitting there. That cat wasn't doing a good job for what it was paid for to do. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll get to the end of this um, comic series and the cat will be the mastermind behind the whole thing. Well, if this is the James Stokoe version of the Alien movie, you'd bet that the Neil Caput version would be from Jonesy's perspective. And what about the Dave Clark version? Oh, uh, I I haven't decided yet. I make the cat the villain and it gets punished. Oh, up yours. <laughs> I give him a few speaking lines. What's the worst that could happen? But um, yes, one final thing that we definitely need to talk about with this is the lettering. Stoko is doing it all himself too, right? This is a yeah. one-man band comic. Yeah, this is very deliberately hand-lettered, at least... 
well, at least for some sections of it. Maybe the rest is like a custom font, but yeah. Well, there's... when characters are screaming, you can definitely see that it's hand-lettered, or they scream, like, as they're making their onomatopoeia death screams, like when the guy's bleeding out of a slit throat. Yeah, and where there's the zombie, this zombie character, when he talks, he's got this really wavy, like, balloons, and it's sort of a different font for the words. Uh, he speaks in lowercase, where everyone speaks in capitals. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it's, it's a very effective attempt to sort of make this all come together as one project, with, like, with some other less so generation gone, because it had a very pared-down art style, and the lettering was fairly straightforward and simple but with other books you get like very like exaggerated uh dynamic all over the place art and then bog standard lettering which kind of creates a disconnect but this is all to be fair the when you see a lot of effort put into lettering by people who want it to be as flashy as the art like in the 90s marvel when they gave every character a different font oh yeah that's a bit much like all of Wolverine's lines have like pointy bits at the end of each character, and all of Thor's lines are in like this weird Nordic font with runic inspired lettering, and it, it was just tedious. And I'm glad they dropped it. Oddly enough, that technique worked in Asterius Polyp, one of my favorite comics. That was a really good comic, and that was an amazing work, and it did have a lot of cats in it, so. I suppose one of the tricks to that is it took me about like two-thirds of the way through to notice that everyone had a different font because they did something that called attention to it. But uh, yeah, don't care. Not everyone needs a very distinctive font. But um, as for this, oh, there's also an explosion where the word Thum is drawn as if it's coming out of the spaceship, which is a really cool effect. Yeah. This is definitely impressive as a work. It's clear that he put a lot into this. A lot of times on this, we talk about comics as a production more than a story. So while the previous generation Gone was an impressively slick production by a team who's working on a larger project, this reads more like James Stokoe bringing everything to, like, a one-man band approach to a common trope that aliens killing people aboard a space station. So you could, if this were music, he'd have, like, the cymbals and the harmonica and the foot pedal. So he'd be making all kinds of sounds at once, but he'd be doing it really impressively. Yeah, this is um, definitely one to check out, and especially if somehow that sale is still going on when this comes out, which it almost certainly won't be. Well, this is definitely a good thing to get for 99 cents. Yeah. Uh, There's also this little trick at the end where they transition from the flashback to present day, where the panels slowly drop down off the page, which I'll be using this as the um, image in our uh, post for this but yeah that's an interesting little trick i like that good but uh yeah really liked this one so for next week what do we have on the slate what was your pick uh my pick for next week is grant morrison's 18 days issue 25 yes that is the full title Ooh. by grant morrison and francesco biagini 
forgive me if I'm butchering that. This is the from the franchise that crosses multiple media that he's doing with an Indian media company, right? Um, I believe so. I'll have to do a bunch more research into what exactly is going on with this. It's sort of surprising to realize that a Grant Morrison ongoing had completely slipped my awareness. Well, he merits having his name on the cover, and Morrison is to comics what Kojima is to video games, where he's definitely got a very idiosyncratic auteur approach to everything he does, and he doesn't exactly do things the way you expect him to. So hearing that he has a series that he's doing for an Indian media company, I'm like, that's interesting, but that's also a very Morrison thing to do, expected in its unexpectedness. Yes, but um, we'll dive deeper on that next week. And uh, what have you picked? Because we had too many good comics on this podcast, I picked Blood Strike Number 1 Remastered, which is a story by Rob Liefeld, which is rescripted by Eric Stevenson and re-illustrated by Dan Fraga and Danny Mickey. Yes, you were telling me about this, and I remain open-minded to this being a good comic. I want to well, be nice to Bloodstrike. Does that extend to being nice to Rob Liefeld? Liefeld? I like Rob Liefeld. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of his art, but I'm a fan of the man. Yeah. With his repeated swipes of other people's material, his franchises that are clearly knockoffs of Marvel and DC stuff, and his inability to actually finish these various starts. I will I will say to anyone, look up the YouTube video of him inking a comic page while driving. That's worth having a look at. I did not know that existed. Yes. I will definitely have to look at that. But yes, uh, so for next week, we've got the Bloodstrike Remastered number one. And Grant Morrison's 18 Days, issue 25. Hopefully there won't be any delays, and we'll, those will be the ones we actually do. Hooray! But yeah, where can people find you online, Neil? I am at wirecats.com, W-Y-R-E-C-A-T-S. And if you subscribe to it on Patreon, I will draw things for you. Yes, and you can find my stuff at daveclarkart.com. I don't have a Patreon where you can bug me to draw things, but hey... If you really want something, send me an email. Maybe we can work something out. But yes, this has been Read It For The Pictures. And until next week, see ya. Bye.